0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This week's double portion of Tazriya Mitsora presents the modern reader with a number of formidable challenges, daunting in its detail, complexity, and seeming distance from contemporary concerns, although as I say this, I'm very conscious that disease and quarantine feel painfully current the four chapters that comprise Tazariah and call out for commentary. Instead of taking up the biblical disease known as Tsaras, colloquially, if inaccurately, translated as leprosy, which occupies the bulk of our Parsha's discussion, I'd like to suggest we use the very first category of human Tumah, of ritual impurity, presented in our Parsha, as a lens with which to shine an interpretive light on the entire phenomena of Tumah Vitara, of ritual Purity and impurity in all its breadth and depth. The Parsha opens with the category of Tumas Yoledes, the ritual impurity that is generated by the birth of a baby child. And the obvious question is, why Tumah at all? Let alone the need for a carbon chatas, a sin offering, to go along with the carbon ola, the elevated or fully consumed offering. Having a child is, after all, one of the greatest divine blessings. To say nothing of a direct biblical command. Why should the mother be declared Tame, ritually impure, for fulfilling a divinely ordained mission, the very first commandment in the Torah? I want to suggest, based on an incredibly original and compelling reading of the great Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, a little more than half a century ago, he wrote a little tract, A Hedge of Roses, which became a veritable bestseller in the Jewish community, and went into six additional printings from the original 1966 edition, finally culminating with a 1980 revised and augmented edition. This book changed the lives of so many people, including myself. What Rabbi Lam argues is that phenomenologically, if you turn to the greatest source of tuma, of ritual impurity, the avi avos ha the cardinal source, the primordial even source of all ritual impurity in Jewish law and halacha, you'll find that it is the corpse. It is the dead human being, a mace. Because Judaism is a faith of life, of life affirmation, of vitality, of creativity. And the opposite of that, the opposite of that is death, which is the source of tuma. If in Judaism, life, chayim, equals Kedusha, the potential for sanctity, the ability to perform the commandments, to engage with other human beings, to relate to God in a real deep relationship, then... The absence of life, death, must be the source of all forms of Tumah, of all forms of ritual impurity, whether it's the Tumas Mase, that origin of all forms of Tumah, whether it's the Tumah of Tsaras that's found in our Parsha, leprosy, which is really a kind of wearing away of the limbs. It's a slow, symbolic death a loss of faculties, a loss of life. And Rabbi Lamb goes on to make the most bold and fascinating suggestion. He does this based on careful study of both the Jewish intellectual tradition, Jewish thought, halacha, as well as the intellectual tradition of the West, citing Hans Jonas, the great philosopher of science and biology, colleague, friend of Leo Strauss, student, one-time student of Heidegger, his studies of Gnosticism as a form of a bifurcated life of body against soul, which is the antithesis of Judaism. Judaism sees the body and soul as a whole entity, as a unified, hylomorphic being. And so, for Rabbi Lamb, not only is death the source of Tumma, but even potential life that is not realized biologically, becomes a source of tuma. The whisper of death, which he so poignantly calls the monthly menstrual period that every woman as an adult gets the chance, the potential for life, which isn't realized often, and that's something that is part of biology, it's part of the life cycle, but it's to be noted, Judaism's passion for life is so profound and so deep that even the loss of potential life the whisper of death creates ritual impurity, creates tumah. And of course, this phenomena of tumah and the equation with death, or the absence of life, the loss of potential life, can also account for our parshas tumas yoledes, because the woman who's giving birth had within her womb, within her very body additional life force and that as beautiful and glorious as it is to give birth, Judaism recognizes that to the woman, to the mother, there is a diminishment of that life force. There is a symbolic loss of that life potential that was in her. And in fact, beautifully, from the point of view of the symbolism and the, the halakha, Rabbi Lamb suggests that this approach to Tuma might just account for that discrepancy which you'll note at the beginning of our Parsha of the Yoledet Zachar versus the Yoledet Nekeva, the mother who gives birth to a baby boy versus a baby girl because the baby boy's mother has seven days of Tuma, a full ritual impurity plus 33 days of to Tahora, this intermediate stage of impurity which prevents the woman, the mother, the newborn mother from entering the temple precincts, from eating kudshim, certain kinds of kudshim, certain kinds of holy foods, including truma, the food given to the priestly families. But the Yoledet, Nekeva, is tamay for 14 days and 66 days of Demetara, double the amount of the mother of the male. And Rabbi Lamb says this follows from the phenomenology of Tuma because the mother who gives birth to a baby boy loses the potential for life that she had within her womb, the baby boy. But the mother who gives birth to a baby girl loses a higher degree, a higher quotient, if you will, of the life force because that that baby girl one day will grow up to be an adult woman who can bring more life into the world, can add to that powerful dynamic of life and the gift of life that is uniquely the gift of motherhood. And so Rabbi Lamb's theory, his account of Tumah, his phenomenological account of Tumah gives this additional perspective to our halacha. Now critics might cynically call all this apologetics. I prefer to call it a rich and biblically informed Theological anthropology, which puts life and creation at the center of the Jewish worldview. In thinking about this symbiotic relationship between birth, life, and the health and vitality of our faith, I came across a fascinating, highly original study by Mary Eberstadt, the senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in a 2017 study, How the West Really Lost God. And the book makes a fascinating argument. It says that there are two ironclad laws of modernity. The first is that modernity, by all accounts, the denizens of the secularization theories, is the progress of modernity against religion. That as we advance and we become more modern, so to speak, we often distance ourselves from traditional religion. The second ironclad rule of modernity, Eberstadt posits, is that we've noticed a decrease in the birth rate, a dramatic decrease that seems to coincide with this eclipse of Western religion. And she wonders, and I quote, What is the actual relationship between these two momentous trends of modernity? Religious decline on the one hand and family decline on the other. This is the chicken or egg question at the heart of this book, Eberstadt goes on to say. And that her proposition is that there was and still is a critical defect in the conventional secular storyline about how and why religion has collapsed in most parts of the West. The missing piece is what Eberstadt dubs the family factor. And what does she mean by the family factor? It is that the causal relationship between family and religion is not just a one-way, but actually a two-way street. In other words, Eberstadt suggests that family formation is not merely an outcome of religious belief, as secular sociology has regarded it, but rather family formation can also be, and has been, a causal agent in its own right, one that also potentially affects any given human being's religious belief and practice. The process of secularization, Eberstadt continues, has not been properly understood because it has neglected to take into account this family factor, the active effect that participation in the family itself appears to have on religious belief and practice. And to flesh out Eberstadt's own anthropology of religious belief, she says, just consider what the experience of childbirth itself does to almost every father and mother. That moment, even that first glimpse on a sonogram, is routinely experienced by a great many people as an event transcendental as no other. This fact of epiphany hardly means that pregnancy and birth ipso facto convert participants into religious zealots, But the sequence of events culminating in birth is nearly universally interpreted as a moment of communion with something larger than oneself. Larger even than oneself and the infant. It is an experience that many people describe as religious or sacred, or as close to those states as one can get. She goes on to suggest another phenomenological, another anthropological insight namely that many of mother and father staring at a newborn has had the sense that they are witnessing something that only a creator could have made, a feeling captured powerfully in prose by the Cold War figure Whitaker Chambers, who writes in his memoir Witness, an incredible book in its own right, about how studying his newborn daughter's ear ultimately led him to reject atheism and believe in God. At this particular moment, a moment of physical confinement and quarantine, a moment with whispers of death and mortality, Jews can meditate and even act on what Jews have always and how Jews have always responded to mortality. With life, with birth, with family, with purity. Jews have always known from the time of Tumas Yoledes and to Saras, to coronavirus. Jews have always known the secret of the family factor, the secret of life. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.